Good to see you all. Hope you had a good week. If you're a blues fan this morning, you are lamenting. If you're a Cardinals fan, you're hoping. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you're celebrating and rejoicing, right? Regardless of how your teams are doing. <clears throat> We're going to be starting a new series this morning, Second Peter, for those of you who have been here for the last several months. We just wrapped up our study of First Peter the week before Easter. And I thought, well, let's just keep right on going. Let's, let's wrap up what Peter has to tell us. Um, we'll get into the meat of the first few verses here in just a few minutes. But uh, Peter probably was around, uh, it was probably around 64, 65 A.D. when he wrote his second letter. <clears throat> As we will see, he doesn't identify the recipients of the letter very clearly for us. All we have to go on are the recipients of the first letter. And those were um, people of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, <clears throat> Christians who had been scattered because of the dispersion. And so we can probably assume that he's writing to the, pretty much the same group of people, a, a letter that would be circulated among the churches throughout that region. And he died within probably about two years of writing this letter. And so he's getting towards the end of his race and he obviously was someone who wanted to finish his race well. And as I read this, I see a man who was wanting to help other believers finish well, run the race, uh, get, to the, get to the finish line and of faithfulness to God and, and do it well. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over these, over these coming weeks. So let's stand for the reading of the first four verses Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's pray. We are always grateful for your word, Lord God. We're grateful for the Spirit of God who is our teacher the one who encourages us, challenges us, convicts us, instructs us in the truth. And so we place ourselves under the, the authority of your word today. We're grateful, Lord, grateful for your grace, grateful that we can learn from you. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> So you're getting ready to start some project. It might be a home improvement project, one of those DIY projects at your house, maybe painting your living room or kitchen, or maybe it's a kitchen project like baking chocolate chip cookies, something as simple as that. 
And the question that you always ask yourself when you're beginning some project, wanting to start doing something, is do I have everything that I need? So, for example, if you're painting, and we just did some painting at our cottage in Michigan a couple weeks ago, a lot of painting, and uh, the question that you're always asking yourself is, okay, do I have do I have the rollers, the right kind of brushes, the edgers, the drop cloths, the rags? Do I have enough paint? Do I have all the supplies? Do I have my paint clothes? And you go through the whole list, and invariably, I almost always discover something that I forgot that I needed. Or you're baking chocolate chip cookies. Do I have all the ingredients that I need? Or am I missing something? Do I have the flour and the chocolate chips and the walnuts and the brown sugar and the sugar and everything else, the eggs and all the ingredients that go into baking chocolate chip cookies. Or do I need to run to Schnucks and get something that I'm missing? Those of us who are going on the Puerto Rico trip uh, this summer, we have this list, this long list, and I made a copy of it just to remind myself that there are a bunch of things on the list that I don't have. Um, Puerto Rico packing list, uh, an outfit for church, Clothes to wear after work, a pair of work gloves, work shoes, work boots, tennis shoes, a hat, safety glasses, blow-up mattress or sleeping bag, the floors will be hard, insect repellent, sunscreen, lip balm, Bible, notebook, pens, water bottle, antibacterial gel or wipes, headlamp. I don't have a headlamp. A day pack, a long list. And so all of us who are going on that trip are going to be going over that list making sure, do I have everything that I need for this missions trip? This morning, we begin our study of Second Peter, and Peter is going to tell us that we have been given everything we need to do all that God has called us to do. We've been, every, we have been given everything we need for life, the Christian life, a life of following Christ, We have been given everything we need for godliness. We've been given everything we need to bless others. We've been given everything we need to honor God in order to finish well. So that wherever you're at in the race today, and however many more laps you have to go till the end of the race, we don't know that, do we? We all want to finish well. I just have to believe that. See, it's not how well you start a project, it's whether or not you finish, and how well you finish. When I read Second Peter, I get the impression, knowing that he was going to die in, within probably a year or two of writing this letter, and knowing some of what we know about Peter, that he was a man who had fallen, he denied the Lord three times, uh, he probably had a fair number of regrets from his past. And now he's nearing the end of his life, and he wanted to finish well, and he wanted that for the saints to whom he was writing. And the Holy Spirit, through Peter, would want the same for us. And so through Peter, the Holy Spirit is going to teach us in this study about making your faith as fruitful and effective as it can possibly be, Um, being diligent to do so, making your calling and your election sure, knowing that there are false teachers in our midst false gospels, heresies, and being able to differentiate the truth from the error. He wants to stir us up by way of reminding us of the things that we're going to be reading and studying in these three chapters. And then he's going to talk about the day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord is coming, 
It's been 2,000 years since Peter wrote this, but it's coming. And even though there were scoffers in Peter's day and there are scoffers in our day, it's coming. And he's going to remind us of that and lock us into that before he finishes. And so I don't know about you, but I want to finish well. I'm 65 years old. I have longevity in my family line. Only the Lord knows the number of our days, right? Whether I have 25 more days, weeks, months, or years, I don't know. My dad lived to be 91. My mom lived to be 87. Chances seem like I may have a good chunk of time left. I want those years to be the very best years of loving and serving God. Whatever shape they take, I want them to be the best years. I want to finish well, and I know that all of you do too. And so as we study God's Word, that's our desire. And the great news is God has given us everything we need to do just that. The letter begins the way all the epistles start out, with the salutation that includes the identification of the one writing the letter and kind of the identification of those to whom he is writing, as we shall see. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. That's the way he identifies himself. A servant of Jesus Christ, an apostle, one who's been sent by Christ with the gospel. And he began his first epistle with just simply Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here it's Simeon Peter. Simeon, the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Simon, um, the second son of Jacob, and so one of the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. Very common Jewish name, Simeon. And this was the name that this great fisherman disciple's parents had given to him at his birth, Simeon. Whereas the name Peter is Greek, and that's the name that Jesus gave to him upon his confession of faith. We can read about it. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He, Jesus, said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now Jesus was not saying that he was going to build his church on the back of Peter. He was not saying he was going to build his church on the character of Simon Peter, who would Proved to be unsteady, believing and then unbelieving, faithful, then unfaithful. Now, obviously, Peter would become a foundational person in the establishment of the early church. Just read the book of Acts, and you find that to be so. But the only person upon whom Christ was going to build his church was himself. We read in Ephesians 2, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and so built on the foundation of, of the apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Thomas, Matthew, Bartholomew, all the rest, and the prophets, but Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the, 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 the most important part of the foundation, Christ. And so when Jesus said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, what did he mean? Well, I believe Jesus was saying, Simon, you just confessed me as the son of the living God. 
And it was my Father who revealed that to you. And I'm going to build my church on the confession of others just like you. Millions and billions of people are going to confess me as the Son of the living God. And that is how I will build my church. I will build my church with the living stones, the living stones of those who believe and confess me as their Lord. Now, why Peter would identify himself using Simeon Peter and not just Peter, we're not told. But I'm glad he did. Because for me, he is telling us that he is both. He is both Simeon and he is Peter. He is Simon. He's, he's the man who one minute was willing to step out of the boat and walk on water in order to get to Jesus, and two minutes later was sinking because he saw the wind and the waves. Or the Simon who got intimidated by a young girl at the campfire on the night that Jesus was betrayed and denied even knowing Jesus. That was Simon Peter. But he also includes the name that Jesus gave him. I am Simon Peter. I am Simon, but I've been given a new identity in Christ. I'm a new creature in Christ. And he's the one who gave me this name. You see, friends, I'm glad that we have Simeon Peter because we all have Simeon and Peter in us. I'm so thankful for a reminder that I am a man who fails and a man who stands tall. I'm a man who believes and I'm a man who struggles with doubts. I'm a man who is rock solid and I'm a man who desperately needs Jesus. Oh, I need you, how I need you, every hour I need you. And that's what the name Simeon Peter does for me. That to my, to my last breath, I will need Jesus. And in my last breath, I am a man who has been made new in Christ. Then he identifies those to whom he is writing, kind of. As I mentioned, he's probably writing to the Christians in Asia Minor, Turkey, to whom he wrote his first epistle. Doesn't tell us that, but we can potentially imply that. And this is where we begin to see that we have been given everything we need in order to run the race and to finish the race. All we have about those to whom he is writing is the statement, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that we know that God has given us in order to run the race and finish the race well is an equal standing in faith. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. So he's saying you've been given a faith of equal standing with other believers. To those who have obtained a faith, he says. So the first question is, how did you obtain this faith? How did you get it? Did you work for it? Did you earn it? Did you prove yourself worthy of obtaining a faith in God? Did you obtain it by being religious? Are you banking on your religiosity? By keeping God's commandments better than the person next to you? Were you more perceptive to spiritual things than other members of your family who today do not believe? 
Were you better than them? How did you obtain faith? Peter tells us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. You've obtained faith by what God has done on your behalf. The Apostle Paul lays it out for us rather extensively in Romans chapter 3, where he writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, Old Testament, bear witness to this righteousness of God, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a a punishment bearer by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, long-suffering patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. A lot of big words, right? There are probably four sermons right there in Romans 3, 21 to 26. Let me try to make it as simple as I can. It means that if today you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you have obtained a faith that has been graciously given to you by God who has declared you to be legally righteous in his eyes, justified in his sight, just as if you had never sinned because of all that Christ did for you on the cross. He is your sin bearer. He is your propitiation. He is your redemption. God did all of that, and that is how you obtained a faith. Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, friends, in the entirety of the human experience, I want you to think about this for a second, in in the whole wholeness of the human experience, believing in Jesus Christ is the supreme expression of human faith. See, there there are many manifestations of faith, are there not? Many expressions of faith. You express faith every week. Every day you express faith that someone's going to be there when they said they would be there. Someone's going to make sure you get paid. Someone's going to know what medicine to prescribe. Someone isn't going to put poison in your food when you go out for lunch after church today. You manifest faith in the things you use. You manifested faith in the chair that you sat in this morning. You express faith every day. But the supreme expression of human faith is believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. That faith is of such a proportion that it requires God do it for you. You see, I can have faith that the sun's going to rise tomorrow morning just like it did today because of the rotation of the earth. I can have faith that the laws of nature are going to be consistent. I can have faith in a lot of things. But to have faith in someone who lived 2,000 years ago, believing that he died for all of my sins, 
that his death absolved me, absolved me of all of my guilt and shame, that he rose from the dead, that he is alive in the world today, that he loves me, and that he is one day going to return to planet Earth, and I am going to live with him forever. Friends, that is a faith of stupendous proportions, and that is a faith that must be supplied by God, period. And so I would say to you this morning, if you do not have that faith, pray, Lord, grant me the gift of faith. Grant me to believe. Help me to believe. Because I cannot do it without you. Then Peter includes that little phrase, a faith of equal standing. I love that. It means equal in rank, position, honor, value. Peter is saying to these believers, and the Holy Spirit is saying to all of you, your faith is of the same standing, the same value as my faith. The same value, the same standing as the faith of all the apostles. Your faith is of equal standing with the faith of the Jews if you are a Gentile. And so that the Gentile could say to the Jewish believer, my faith is of the same value as yours. I enjoy the same position in Christ that you enjoy. That's what Peter means by having a faith of equal standing. Now, of course, in Jesus' day, the scribes and Pharisees didn't particularly care for equal standing. They liked unequal standing to be able to stand over other people. They enjoyed their place of high standing, a place which they had established for themselves, by the way, which made Jesus very angry. Luke 11, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, unequal standing. Luke 20, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation. See, Jesus despised spiritual loftiness. He hated it, probably as much if not more than anything else. Jesus was all about bringing up those who were diminished by the actions and attitudes of others. You read the Gospels, that's what you find. Zacchaeus from Jericho, chief tax collector, despised by everybody else in town. And yet Luke 19, Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. Gift of faith. He's obtained faith. The Samaritan leper who came back to Jesus to give thanks. The Samaritan woman at the well who had been married five times and was now basically trading sex for a roof over her head, John 4. The many Samaritans in that woman's town who came to faith in Jesus. The Canaanite woman whose daughter had a demon. Matthew 15, Jesus said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Children, lepers, blind beggars, demoniacs. See, friends, that's the wonder that you find in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The wonder that you find in the Gospels. Don't 
read them simply as nice Bible stories. You've got to see just how radical they are in their narrative of Jesus of Nazareth so that you read them and you say, Jesus, what are you doing talking to this woman at the well? What are you doing spending time with lepers? What are you doing allowing children into your busy schedule? What are you doing talking to a prostitute? What are you doing giving dignity to the lowest in society? Lepers? Seriously? See, you read the Gospels with an eye to see how Jesus was turning everything upside down with the objective of bringing saving faith to the least of these, bringing faith to social outcasts, bringing faith to the condemned, bringing faith to the forgotten in society. Friends, think about it. All the people on that list and others obtained a faith of equal standing with Daniel and King David, a faith of equal standing with Isaac and Isaiah, Rahab and Ruth. Rahab had a faith of equal standing with Ruth. Mary Magdalene had a faith of equal standing with Mary, the mother of our Lord. And today, all who believe on the Lord Jesus are made to stand on equal ground with the apostles and the prophets and with all of our spiritual forebears who have gone before us. Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, Billy Graham, Fanny Crosby, Jonathan Edwards, R.C. Sproul, Rosa Parks, any spiritual forebears that you want to put up on the screen, you have an equal standing with them. Why? Because if you are in Christ, you stand on level ground at the foot of the cross with all other believers. Billy Graham stands right next to you at the foot of the cross. Now, there's an implication for this, I think, for us. A faith of equal standing with ours tells me that I am not allowed to separate myself from others or elevate myself over others or show partiality to some. It does not allow me to diminish someone because of the color of their skin or which side of the tracks they happen to live on or what high school they attended or where they went to college or if they went to college or what they do for a living or how much money they make or anything else. Rather, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives dignity to all. First, because all are image bearers of God. And second, because all who believe in Christ have obtained a faith of equal standing with all other believers. Therefore, I dare not do that which God himself does not do. Now, something else that you've received in order to finish the race well, you've received equal access to everything that God's provided. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. His divine power, the power of God, has granted, it's in the perfect tense, meaning it's a past action that has continuing effects. Something that happened in the past 
God has granted, and now it has continuing effects. His divine power has granted to us all things. It's given us access. Some of us are going to a conference in Louisville this week. We received a wristband, and I threw it on, not because I don't want to forget it, but because I wanted a sermon illustration. Um, You wear the wristband to the conference, and you're granted access to everything pertaining to the conference, everything pertaining to the conference. The speakers, the breakout sessions, the Q&A sessions, the displays, the free books, and we're going to come home with free books. You can even go up and talk to the speakers after a session. You can go up and talk to John Piper, Matt Chandler, John MacArthur, Al Mohler, David Platt. If you register for the conference and have your wristband, you have equal access with everyone else there who has a wristband. You who are in Christ have been granted equal access to everything you need for living a life of godliness that is honoring to God and a blessing to other people. Full access. And it's all been granted to you by God's power. His divine power has granted to us all things. And so your faith began with God's power and your faith continues with God's power. It It was the power of Almighty God and the gospel that brought about your salvation. Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross, it's the power of God for those who are being saved. And now, Peter says, that same power that saved you has now bestowed you with all things, not some things, not a few things, not a short list, but the full list, all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have access to all of it. That's why Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, a key ingredient in all of this is the knowledge of God and of His Son, the Lord Jesus His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Back in verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What does that mean? It means you, you need correct knowledge if you are to finish the race well. You need the knowledge of God. You need the knowledge of Jesus. Knowledge, epignosis. It's the idea of a full, rich, thorough knowledge and understanding of a subject. At trivia night on Friday night, at your table, you, you, you appreciated having certain people at your table with fields of knowledge. There were science questions, so you were so thankful that there was someone at your table who knew science. There were sports questions. You were glad for those people who, who knew answers to sports questions. Here, it's not just trivial knowledge. It's not just head knowledge, it's the objective knowledge of God that God has revealed to us that then becomes personal experiential knowledge for the believer. It's based upon the knowledge of God that he's revealed in the scriptures and in his son, the Lord Jesus, and then it becomes my knowledge. It becomes real for me so that I don't just know about God, I know God. Or more accurately, I am known by him. 
I don't just have facts about Jesus. I know Jesus as my personal Savior and Lord. That's the knowledge that God grants. Peter's going to end his letter with the exhortation for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And friends, that is what you need to be doing each and every day. Grow in your knowledge of God. Grow in your knowledge of Christ. J.I. Packer. What were we made for, he writes. To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, more delight, more contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, says God. Once you have become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. And then Packer says, well, then what does this knowing God involve? He says it involves listening to God's word and receiving it as the Holy Spirit interprets it and applies it to your life. That's where it begins, listening to God and his word and letting the Holy Spirit interpret it and apply it to your life. Secondly, noting God's nature and character. What do I learn about God's nature and character in this book? Thirdly, accepting God's invitations and doing what he commands. That's a, that's a relational, that's the relationship going on. And then lastly, recognizing and rejoicing in the love that God has shown to you in drawing you into this fellowship. God has drawn you into this fellowship. Do you not want to know him better? Would you not want to know him better? You have been given equal access to everything you need to know God better. Lastly, thirdly, you've received equal blessings. Peter says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruptions in the world because of sinful desire. So God has granted to us, you've obtained a faith, he's given you access to everything you need, and he has granted to you his promises. A theme through the Old Testament, God keeps his promises. A theme through the entire Bible, God keeps his promises. God has never broken any promise that he has ever made. Joshua 21, a verse that stood out to me this week, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Or Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. 
So you've got the blessing of his promises. You're going to need those promises to finish the race well. You're going to need the promises of God to run the race well. Peter describes them as being precious. That means of great value, like precious metals or precious diamonds of incredible worth to the believer, the promises of God. He describes them as being very great, exceedingly great. We're talking about all the promises that God has made to his people. Do not take promises out of context. If there are some promises that are in the historical context that are just for somebody, for example, in the Old Testament, don't yank it out. What you should take out of there is this is a God who keeps his word. This is a God who keeps his promises. Say, well, Gary, what are those? Oh, my goodness. How much time do we have? The promise of forgiveness, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove your transgressions from you. In the deepest ocean, he casts them. The the, the promise of salvation, the promise of adoption, members of God's household, the promise of spiritual life being given to those who are spiritually dead, the promised Holy Spirit by whom you cry out, Abba, Father, the promise that he will never leave you, never forsake you, the promise to complete what he has begun, the promise to hear your prayers, the promise to provide, protect, defend, guide, help, sustain, shepherd his sheep, the promise that in your life all things will work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, the promise that he has gone to prepare a place for you and he will come again to take you to be with him where he is, the promise of heaven, The promise that one day, brothers and sisters, you will see the Lord face to face. Praise God. And the result of all of God's promises, he says, you're enabled to share in the nature of God himself. You're able to share his character. You're able to share his holiness. And you have escaped the corruptions in the world because of sinful desires. Everything you need. Equal standing faith. Equal access to all that God's given. Equal blessing through Christ. Now, Let me begin to wrap it up. If God the Father, I want you to think with me. Stop taking notes and just think for a minute with me. If God the Father has graciously granted to you to obtain a faith of equal standing, if you have access, the same access that Luther and Calvin and Edwards and all of your spiritual fathers and mothers had, And every spiritual blessing, including all of God's promises, are yours, simply needing to be acted upon and appropriated in your life, that you've received everything you need in order to live a good life and a godly life and a life that blesses other people, what is the personal therefore from all of that? I'll tell you what I think it should be for all of us who know Jesus. See if you agree with me. Here it is. It's a two-sided coin. Therefore, stop making excuses and start acting upon who you are in Christ. I believe we need to stop coming up, and I'm speaking out of the heart of a man who has done this and continues to do it, I'm speaking on level ground with all of you. I'm standing, I'm sitting with you. We need to stop coming up with flimsy excuses for not living good, productive, fruit-bearing, sin-conquering, 
Christ-honoring, God-trusting, neighbor-loving, joy-emanating lives to the glory of God. We need to stop justifying sinful actions and foolish choices. Stop making allowances for your pride, stubbornness, lack of love, your inability to forgive others, your judgmental spirit, your self-righteousness, your prejudice, your lack of kindness, patience, gentleness. We need to stop blaming our upbringing or the genes that you inherited from your ancestors. You need to stop blaming a godless culture for your problems. We are such a victim culture. Everybody's a victim of someone or something. Man has always been a blaming creature ever since the fall. It's one of the characteristics that sets us apart from the rest of creation. Animals don't blame each other. Dogs and cats don't blame each other. We blame. We feel the need to find someone to put the blame on for our problems and our failings. I'm here to tell you this morning, as your pastor and as a believer to believers, Based upon the fact that you have obtained an equal standing, have been given equal access to everything God has provided and that you need, and that you are recipients of equal blessing, you just need to make a personal resolution that you will stop excusing, justifying, and blaming. Stop putting the responsibility on someone else for your spiritual growth. You're responsible to grow. You're responsible to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't put the onus of responsibility for the spiritual growth of your children on anyone but you. You as parents have been given everything you need to raise your children to know and to love Jesus. Don't put the onus of responsibility on Allie or Will or Sunday school teachers As parents, you have everything you need. So, as believers who have equal standing, equal access, and equal blessing, stop excusing, stop justifying, stop blaming. Man up. And then flip the coin over. Start acting upon who you are in Christ. Start benefiting from and appropriating all that God's given you for life and godliness. You have access to all of Scripture. You have access to good teaching and good preaching. You have access to fellowship with the saints. You have access by the Holy Spirit to the throne of God's grace in prayer. You have access to every spiritual blessing. Your Heavenly Father has given you everything you need to run and finish well. Therefore, let us humbly and confidently and resolutely and joyfully do exactly that. Amen? Let's pray. Would you please take just a minute, talk to the Lord. If you're here this morning and, and you don't have this faith that I've been talking about, would you just simply turn to God in, in humility and, and say, Lord, please give me the gift of faith. 
Help me to believe. Spirit of God, help me to see Jesus for who he is. Help me to see my need for a Savior. And then in faith, say, Lord Jesus, I I receive you. Today is my day to believe in you. For the rest of us, whatever God is saying to you this morning, you should celebrate the truths that we've looked at. And probably someplace in there, there is something that God is calling you to do. To run, the, to run the race well. He has given us so much, so much. Father, forgive us for, for our negligence. <clears throat> forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for taking these things lightly at times. We confess to you that we are both Simon and Peter at the same time. We believe, and yet we struggle with our doubts. We stand firm, and yet we stumble. So we just confess to you how much we need you, and so, so thankful that you're gracious with your children. You're so glad when we try to walk and when we, when we stumble and fall, you pick us back up. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would walk with you this week, that we would know you better and love you more, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, that we would understand that we stand at the foot of the cross on equal ground, not elevate ourselves above others, that we would do all that we can to bring faith to the least of these in society. Thank you for being gracious to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great, great love demonstrated on the cross. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, and he said, This is my body which is broken for you. This is my body which is given for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. Then after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup, you're remembering me and honoring me until the day when I return. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. God's people agreed by saying,